This is Shane Adams and Patrick Rollins, and you are listening to the SE Rat Pack Podcast. This is our first episode, and we're actually recording live here at SHOT Show 2022 in the booth. Uh, our guest today, actually our first guest ever, we don't really know when this is going to be published because we're going to try to bank a few, is our, our very own Ruben Bollier. Uh, Ruben is an instructor, a designer, a chef, a globetrotter, a bit of a vagabond, a writer, a photographer, probably a poet, I'm not real sure. <laughs> but, uh, nobody yeah. is. Ruben, uh, welcome. Thanks, man. Our inaugural very Exciting. first guest. It's cool to see where this rocket takes us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rocket. So, so it, you know, having been part of uh, the Essie family, I knew of Ruben and Patrick because I trained first, and I've always been curious about um, where and how you and P. Rollins first met. I think the first time we met actually in person was 2010. Yeah. We were in Fort Payne, and they were doing uh, five-day classes. Then at the time, it was Jeff, Jeff Randall, Mike Perrin, uh, Patrick. I just got back from a trip to Southeast Asia, and I asked Jeff, you know, what's going on? What can I do to help? Mm-hmm. He said, you can come down and help me teach this class. We've got a lot of people from the 2009 class yeah. doing, coming back to hang. So I flew over there, and it's my first time flying down there to, to Birmingham, Jeff snatches me up, and we throughout the day just kind of showed me around town, stopped this old church, beautiful, took a bunch of photos, and um, we met later that night, I think, at a restaurant, I forget the name of it, but there was like some little bull out front or something. Texas Roadhouse. Is that it? Yeah, the old car out front. I think, that's, I think that was it. It's first time meeting the other people, and uh, we're kind of standing in line, I don't know anybody, but you know, maybe Jeff and Jimmy Dunn, who I met earlier the day. And you know, this this guy just kind of says, "You doing any cool reviews or something like that?" And it was Patrick and the first time that uh, he introduced himself, and and uh, I think we just kind of sat close to each other at the table and talked, got to know each other. We're all going to do the same um, the same class the next day. Uh, the next day we're out in the woods, and they had different stations. I, I remember the one was like fire station, and I just ended up randomly with with Patrick, and we kind of throughout the day they changed out groups of um, students and we were doing fire and giving them fire tips and it's kind of a fun day uh, it's different it was still a new relatively new thing for the company to do classes in the states at yeah. that time yeah. it had just been it made their bones doing jungle survival classes and um, so this was still kind of a, well I would say in an embryo stage. Yeah, that was just the, the second one. First one second was oh nine. That's right. Yeah. Now we hadn't really brought training stateside that much at that no. point, right? That, yeah, that was the second woodland operations class that we did in Fort Payne. Jeff and Jimmy had done a land nav class, at least one, maybe two, uh, before that. Right. And then that's where I saw that they were doing classes but I'd, I'd missed it and then when they posted the woodland operations in 09 that's the one i was able to get in that's right yeah so how how long had you been kind of in the fold at the, i mean i know you weren't instructing for us at that point how long had you been training with rat at that time so i saw a class in 2009 five-day woodland operations i was still at the sheriff's office and um involved tracking basic survival basic ropes repelling 
land navigation, and um, it was called Woodland Operations, and that sounds law enforcement enough to to let them. <laughs> let sounds, you, like a, sounds like a medical group. <laughs> let you attend, and so I was able to get time off and go take that class in '09, so just the year before. Okay. But I had seen Ruben in forums, in the old jungle training forum, right. the old old forum. Yeah. And um, I don't remember, maybe a year or two prior, and saw these pictures this guy was posting up where he was training in his backyard because he was going to be going to the jungle and i'm like it looks pretty tropical where he's at it was, you know california yeah, well, he's, he's palm back, trees back there you know building up his uh you know machete endurance and all kinds of stuff like that and at first i'm like what's he you know what, what what's he doing and the more Just i read right. and, and then i got to where i would look forward to you know seeing his trip reports and his photographs and 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 all that you know he's doing different stuff on swiss army knives machetes you know all kinds of fixed blades and i'm like that that's cool you know it just seems really cool what's funny is um <clears throat> i came I, I guess i became aware of of randall's in about 2010 2011 and i remember bear the dog mm-hmm. your right, screen yeah. name kind of hard to forget <laughs> and then yours was hobo jack was hobo jack. hobo jack i can remember reading that stuff and you and i live in the same town didn't yeah. know it and uh and i can remember reading trip reports and seeing stuff too and and i like to do a lot of research before i do something and man, i started trying to dive into i decided i want to take the field survival class and, and try to find anything i could on that and of course nobody writes anything <laughs> on that because we don't want to shortchange you but or scare you hey well <laughs> either way so that was y'all's first meeting yes when did um i guess when did you uh get uh jumped into the uh rat family <laughs> we hope it was jumped yeah. which gang <laughs> um i think it started in 2007 when i went on my first trip with the company to go just a little bit back in time before that um, there was a magazine at the time i picked up called tactical knives and that magazine at the time was a running ad i feel like it was half a page quarter page you might have seen it too mm-hmm. and it was there was these two guys taking people to um the rainforest in peru and it was some of the company affiliated uh, the sales uh, mm-hmm. they were part of it something that they were doing and it had changed over to them just doing jungle survival classes on their own running people down their different groups everybody was welcome people from at the time i think it was all over the world um, and I'd seen that. I'd seen that probably a good six or seven years before I actually made the, the move to uh, to join up. At the time, I was just a long-distance, high-altitude backpacker, peak bagger, as they would say. Mm-hmm. Going really light, going for miles, not missing the scenery, though, which often people can do. And uh, I remember did Grand Canyon up and down one year, Mount Whitney, all the biggest peaks in Southern California. My cousin says to me, what are you going to do next? I always wanted to go to the jungle. I just grabbed whatever magazine I had that was always running ads for the school and called the number. Within within a few minutes, I was talking to Mike Perrin and already signed up for the next class. This was September. That class was going in November. Yeah, that was 2007. That first time I met those guys, really, was in Peru, in Lima, the airport. And we went to this uh, really nice, super classy hotel oh no no that wasn't it was actually pretty crappy a dump <laughs> like a sauna twelve dollars a night i don't think there was a toilet seat between all of us in the rooms 
or a toilet that actually flushed. But I got it. It was to start at that point because it's only going down from right. there. Um, that was the high point. Right. That was the All down <laughs> lap of luxury. Right. And um, it had been a few years since they had run that class, and um, they were getting acquainted. We were getting to know each other. I was one of five students. That was my first experience with uh, Randall's Adventure and Training Group. Mm-hmm. So even before you uh, hooked up with us, you, I'm always curious to hear kind of where that vagabond spirit comes from like what's the what's the motivate you were a traveler in a peak back like where does that sure. what's that born out of my first memory was probably just in the snow San Bernardino mountains with my grandfather and just basically it being pulled up by the arm into the next step because it was the snow was kind of <laughs> high frozen tomatoes on the table uh, we just kind of grew up hiking and backpacking with my grandfather mm-hmm. he was a U.S. Marine and had a uh, love for adventure so uh we we rode that train too. Good time, a lot of camping, walking, hiking. Back then, it was a lot easier just to drive roads till they turn into trails, trails until they turn into you can maybe get through there and squeeze through. Then okay, this is where we stop and we get out and hike and throw the twenty two over your shoulder and thirty out six a slingshot bag. We we're in mountain lion country and we're always kind of looking around on a guard. Uh, California has a lot of that, so uh, we just ended up doing that a lot. They've been doing that before I was ever born. So just the, the idea of getting out um, in the woods, in the forest, and seeing what that is like after being Southern California in a city where that is like kind of two opposite planets. Uh, that was nice. It was good to have. That, that was when we were very young. And growing up, I, we, the more we camped, the more I hated my grandfather's style of camping. <laughs> he had a checklist of 81 things he needed to have in order for us to camp. And I decided that when I start doing, going my own way with camps and adventures, I'm going to shrink that list down in my own way. So I went a lot lighter. And going for 60. <laughs> yeah, I could get that down to 75. <laughs> and yeah, really just hiking, backpacking, and then being in Southern California, the opportunity to go to neighboring Arizona and Nevada and get involved with different groups in the area that do trips and backpacking and hiking and pretty much it started just like most people camping and hiking and a lot of that led to doing backpacking trips where just got to get good gear better gear know how to use your gear and being a backpacker going for distance and liking the scenery the challenge especially uphill hiking. I always love that. Um, that has nothing to do with wilderness survival skills whatsoever. And that's okay. It doesn't have to. It's a different thing. But I just got very curious about cutting weight, doing that with bringing less stuff and just being able to walk away from your pack and not completely panic would be useless if you get turned around and I decided to get in more into the skills based things and about 2000, I started to buy these Ron Hood videos, the Woodsman series, and go from there. At the time, we didn't have the resources like we do now to just the want to learn a skill. Yeah, look it up or more <coughs> books. There were very few books, books that I had access to or that I even knew of. So it was pretty much again through magazine ads, Woodsman series, and you want to collect them all, but you can't. And they were VHS, I remember. And I think we all just kind of dissected those things. Whoever got a hold of them learned what we could it was just one way of doing things but it's good to practice that when you're on camping trips and things like that 
So I guess it had it started just being a, a camper, hiker to backpacker, kind of lightweight side of backpacking. That's how it kind of led to the skills. It's like natural <laughs> graduation. So you're, I, we both, you're a much better photographer than me, but I've always been captivated by your photography. And uh, what a lot of people don't know, you're probably one of the most prolific writers for the knife industry. I mean, I mean, you take great photos. I've been called worse. Well, by nicer people, probably. <laughs> we, didn't say that, we didn't say the articles were any good. <laughs> so, so tell me how you how you got into writing uh, and print stuff, and 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 kind of you do that a lot for a lot of different people. I do have over the years. Again, it leads back to um, the first trip, 2007, Peru. Um, People don't realize from the pictures that we are on a, a boat, little boat, for anywhere from seven to nine hours. Yeah. With without breakdowns and <laughs> you know, stopping for things, and you get to know people. And I sat across the oh, I, uh, sat across from Jeff Rando at the time was he he wrote for several magazines and did photography for several outdoor magazines. Had been probably reading him for about ten years before I signed up and actually committed to doing. The trip, uh, me and a handful of other guys that are pretty active in the industry today, we all started off on one or two or three forums doing reviews, posts, but kind of already in that layout of magazines because we had been reading them and looking at them and mm-hmm. seeing other people doing lengthy reviews, not just the post. We kind of put a lot of time and effort into it, and all those guys, including myself, ended up, ended up writing for big publications. But Jeff, being a writer and photographer, he was... He was saying something to me on, on the boat, like, you, you know, he, his, his words were, you should be writing for these magazines, too, and I didn't, I told him, not a writer, and I don't know shit about photography, which was, at the time, I was, it wasn't something I was trying to do, it was just, I had a little point-and-shoot camera. He gave me some good advice to shoot everything and ask for uh, permission later. You can always play the tourist, I'm sorry card. <laughs> but to shoot everything, because you never know. I mentioned this to you too that we had conversations about photography, just shooting everything. You never know when you're going to use it and catalog it, or when you'll ever and, see uh, it again. True. Um, I, I'm using pictures in the past few years from 2007 and 8 that I just have a mental idea of where it is in the folders to find. But, um, but Jeff was very supportive about me getting into the magazine world, and um, he gave me one editor's contact. It was really just a phone number and email back then. Um, Stephen Dick, um, who has a name for himself too in the industry, and um, I, I remember about after the trip, three months later, Jeff asked me, "Did you ever get a hold of him or call him?" I said, "No, no, I, I didn't." And, and he said, "Well, you should." And he kind of gave me some encouragement about something I posted, and that would be perfect in the magazine. So I decided to email the editor, and he was real good about emailing me back and interested. Um, and that's really how it got started. Tattoo and I was my first publication I wrote for and did um, did some photos for. And then it just kind of increased from there, several magazines after that. And again, it just kind of traced back to that one trip in 07 with the company. Really opened the big door, the gates. You know, the funny part about that is is how time and the environment has changed. I'm the social media guy, so I get yep. 10 requests a day for free stuff 
to review or whatever else. And I, it's, right. it speaks to a different motivation is you were writing and doing all these reviews, not because you wanted product, because you wanted exactly. people to know. Uh, sure. And there was no end game. Now, now the end game is I want free stuff and I'll show it to my 37 followers. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. And so uh, that's kind of cool to me in a, a bit of a uh, honesty of purpose in that, I guess, you know, where it's just right. like you were doing it not for, and you didn't really, really want to parlay that into a career in writing. No, I didn't see myself doing that. Uh, it was more of the love of the game and information, just getting out there. Sharing experiences. I was more eager to share stuff that took me a long time to figure out and learn and get right. And somebody can tell you, uh, or show you it, it's going to be a lot quicker than you know, having to investigate it your own way. Figure it out on your own. Right. It's like you, you can tell somebody all about it, draw about it, dance about it, write about it, or you can show them. So that was uh, the uh, way of getting music across was important. So um, I know you're a designer. You obviously, the RB3 is right. the Ruben 3. Yeah. Uh, you've also designed for Tops. That's right. Who else? Uh, just some custom guys custom companies call them by name well breeding knives was one of them uh did a they did my first cub it was very different but still the general shape and size i wanted at the time i always went lighter wanted to go lighter um than what was out there it's really sometimes you have something in your head of what you want whether it be a pair of shoes or a piece of gear it's just not out there so you it's just good enough you settle but something inside of you you're still trying to strive or get somebody to make that one thing that a little tweak you like yeah so your knife for top, tops is the cub right yes sir that's right yeah. the cub and you are a uh <laughs> despite what people say or think <laughs> it is not the combat utility blade it's the compact utility blade <laughs> You you prefer that Scandi grind? You like that grind? I did I spent a lot of time in um, with Mora knives and small little Scandi knives at the time? I'm going to say 2005 to 2007 when everything was full tang, quarter inch thick. Um, just these. You're describing this <laughs> different. Yeah, different. It's a different time, and everybody was really kind of following the BK9, which was real big by our friend Ethan Becker, and just thick knives by tops, and those serve the purpose for your needs and your age and your level of experience at that time. Mm-hmm. I was maybe getting out of that, and uh, like a lot of people do, they gravitate. You see it You see it with, with gear and, and, and equipment and packs. People, you start off with this massive thought and idea, and that transfers over to the size of your equipment, and then it downsizes and you get smaller packs and more your head gets bigger and full of ideas and then your pack could hopefully get smaller and weight and knives and yeah knives the same way i think everybody goes through that Uh, yeah think think of all the the junk knives you've had over the years you know growing (laughs) up starting out should i name them (laughs) the latest and the greatest and oh yeah bigger thicker yeah and it's contagious because you post it on the forum and this guy has it i want to have it yeah we all gone through that. Well, we see it in our classes too, oh, where oh, yeah. where uh, we we see new customers come to class, especially like advanced a knife centric class like advanced bushcraft. Yeah, and everybody comes with these massive knives, and then a- as their skill acquisition goes up, right, the knives get smaller and smaller. thinner. Yep. Yeah, and I always true. see you carry. A, is it the Mora Classic? Uh, yeah, I around the neck. Classic one or the 
It's a two slash one, three inch blade. Either way, the, nothing there that, that I'm using is more than three thirty seconds inch uh, thick these days. But I've been using that for several years. So to get back to your initial question about the Scandies, when I started using those, your only real option at the time for Scandinavian grind ground knife was stick tang, uh, partial tang. And there's still that residual survival mentality of, well, I need it to be full tang, I want it to be full tang. So that is why um, when it came time to be able to come up with something or design, Mike Fuller was the... Uh, a founding member of Topps Knives, president and a friend of mine. I feel I was one of his first civilian customers in 1999. Started off with a big old knife. Somebody told me t 10 years later he was going to ask me to do a design for him. I wouldn't have believed it. But the third time he asked me, I, I said, okay, I agreed to it. And it was a conversation I had actually with Jeff Randall. He said, you need to put your name on something or you know, something about I wasn't the new guy anymore and I, I maybe should have a design or something like that. I remember telling Mike, Mike Fuller, I don't see anything wrong with, with the knives and the blades that are out now, that are out today. I like the old hickory. I like the Mora knives. Um, I would say the SC3 knife, but it wasn't quite out yet at the time. And um, So we all make do with what we have, and when you have the chance to make something that you want, it's like... I would say a kid's dream come true for the first time. <laughs> at first. <laughs> yeah. So I... I gravitated toward the Scandinavian grind, and it ended up being, they weren't doing true zero Scandies at the time. It was new for a lot of production companies to take that task on. It was more of a Scandivex, not like convex grinds too. And um, when I got a chance to design uh, other knives after that, I tried to go for the, the true Scandi. To me, it just was easy to sharpen. I wasn't the best knife sharpener at the time, so it was easy. And um, even when that blade got rather dull, the geometry of it still would, would shave wood where it, a, a V-grind or a convex would round out, would, you'd just be skipping. And your, your, your wood, if you were shaving, it would have these little like marks and skips like you were scraping. <laughs> and and it, it didn't quite do that with its candy, so I, I like that. For me, one of the more important elements of wilderness experiences, whether it be survival or car camping or fire pit in your backyard, is heat and fire. So being able to make your own tinder all the time was, was always, always in my head. And I felt with the Scandi that, that helped me do that. So we're always talking books, outdoor books. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. And a lot of the old, you know, late 1800s authors, not early 1900s. Right. What are some uh, yeah. of your favorites? Anything with pictures, because I don't <laughs> read. People don't realize that I can write magazines, but I don't read very well. I read pictures in any <laughs> language you can imagine. Not cut, we're not talking coloring <laughs> books. But, uh, oh, well. But no, some of the old greats that we like, were always discussing. Like when you hear the chime, turn the page. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, yeah. So I think uh, I started off with just reading a lot of outdoors magazines and articles and stuff. Then you hear these names being referenced. Strange names, weird names that you'd never heard before, like Nesmuk and Kephart. And you, you, you get Moors. more curious. Moors. <laughs> Ellsworth. Yeah, it's like a group of, <laughs> this is the village people here. It's like a group of bandits. So you, you do your investigating, and at the time, I remember, I didn't even have Wi-Fi or anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> so you do your best to find them. And, and um, I would have to say Nesmuk's book uh, was one of the first ones I, I really got influenced in. The area I'm currently living in, 
you know, the Northeast is very close to his stomping grounds in Pennsylvania. Yeah. A lot of the same wood. So all that stuff transferred. It wasn't a how-to survival book at all. It was a story adventure book. Now, for me, eager to learn skills and do trips and adventures, that was perfect because it, it wasn't a skills book. It was a, we're doing stories and here's some adventures. And that was great for us for me, for people at the time, because oh, yeah. it, was, it was a different turn. It wasn't how to do this. It was, this is what I did one time on a trip. and paints a picture, and you want to do that, too. You want to hear the sound of that gurgling creek. Um, you know, the old owl comes and greets you. Things like this that kind of stick in my head. They may not be... I'll, I'll ruin them if I try to recite any of it now, but so much how better I remember than, it... So much better than shot show noise. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, how I remember it is sometimes better than how it actually happened. Um, just the stories, and, and that was that was, that was was huge for me. Uh, the Horace Kephart's book, well, several versions of the 1912, um, and, and they're both, they're interchangeable, camping and woodcraft, woodcraft and camping. Camp, yeah. I, to this day, I'll still screw it up. That was, that was one of my favorite, favorite, favorite books, just... It still to this day is true. Keep, Everything in there. Keep going back to it. And keep going oh back wow! Yeah. It, it's amazing the stuff that he was able to compile, information that was all put into in, into one very large book at the time. I consider that the encyclopedia. Yeah. Funny, I, I, over the years I've written several articles on just wilderness living and skills, and I I quote those two as much as I can. Besides that, DC Beard. DC Beards, uh, shacks and shanties. Always loved doing shelters and making little huts and stuff. I think we all did. Oh, yeah. When you're playing guns in the backyard or. Still making forts yeah. as an adult. <laughs> Still doing it. Don't tell them. Shot show. <laughs> Come check out a debris. <laughs> but uh, yeah, building stuff, crafting stuff was big for me. So shacks and shanties, DC Beard, don't ask me the year. It's old. And um, of course, his camp, camp lore. Yeah. Uh, that. that uh, that name and that title, that book was so important to me that, uh, well, it ended up being a series of, of knives, right? I guess we can get into that after. But um, one I cannot leave out because to this day it tells a heck of a story is the Morris Kohansky book, uh, Bushcraft. I Bushcraft. believe it's uh, Bushcraft and, and, and magical sorcery stuff. It was like an 18, 1986 publication, yeah. I think. I didn't get it till. Late 90s, and I didn't really start looking at it, and it didn't start making sense till after that. But that is the one book that, if I were put on the table, somebody would ask, "What happened to this?" There's pages, <laughs> like there's coffee stains. It fell in the bathtub many times while I have it someplace because uh, the rubber ducky wasn't there to support yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, it is rough times <laughs> on the trail. But uh, that was huge, and I think I got the most uh, knife skill from oh, yeah. from that. Just reading it, watching the diagrams. I love the way he could talk about saw use or knife use and nail it in a few paragraphs. It's very hard to write how to do something. Yep. You experience this. I mean, but you both have written articles and been published. And when you write in the how-to, in your head, you know, you can show somebody, you can think it. But to put it on paper, it, it could end up 500 words. It's like, well, that's, that's, <laughs> no, that's not going to fly. <laughs> that's one of the so, things that I, like I noticed with P, with Patrick, is that um, P, P. Patrick, that's Patrick Rollins. <laughs> Mr. Pete. Um, Pity the fool. Is there's so much nuance that you guys do, and I don't ever consider myself an instructor, but I am a kind of a color commentator in what we do, and I've been around it enough to pick up on, I'm not so far removed from the student, but I'm not the instructor, but mm -hmm. I was like, hey, stop right there. 
you don't know you did this, but they need to know you did yeah. this because it's one of the things right. that he does, <clears throat> and I know you do it too, with something as simple as fire is, you know, we make our tender and we talk about tender size and sure. all that stuff, but what I've seen him do time and time again is he'll keep a stick close at hand, and we all had that opportunity where we've collected our timber, tender, it started to burn, but you need a little more sure. of a specific size. All right. All so he makes it versus gathering it. He keeps that piece of wood there. If I need, you know, something that's a little more of a fuzz stick or a feather stick, he can make something fine. If you make something that next size up right. that's feathery, right. thicker, yes. wider. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's something that Huge. most people, if they're not really plugged into the process or hasn't had the opportunity to see it time and time again, hmm. they miss. Yeah, right. It's those little things. Um, they're often... Bigger than you think. Yeah. So. And, and you guys do it because you've done it so much. True. And it's unconscious for you. And that's it. And so to be able to, I like to stand back and observe a lot. To, and to, yeah. to observe and try to pick out Heck, that nuance too. for yeah. success is really cool. It's always easier to, to teach when you're hands-on and able to show. Oh, yeah. Versus just standing up in front of them and telling them how to do it. Right. It's it, a lot easier. It, I agree. And just being around students and classes and groups of people and teaching anything um, like you said yeah, you get you get more of it it's t- to our detriment these days and even going back several years with with YouTube out there it's a great source of information and a great source of dead wrong information we stand in front of people and half of them these days they've they kind of get what we're going for when we start they skip ahead doing the notches and traps they feel they already know it because they've seen it on YouTube when you get your hands on something and you start realizing this isn't as easy as it looked didn't look you know it wasn't this hard didn't look this hard (laughs) and Patrick was doing it on YouTube it's a it's a different thing when you actually get your hands on it and uh, start working on a project and cutting it's that that is way more powerful. You can learn more of that than watching a YouTube video. Nothing against that. Great source of information. Oh, yeah. Just think, uh, hands on. You can't beat it. I think Arlie Army had a quote. And he said, "I can tell you how to do something ten times, but if I could put my hands on you, yeah. <laughs> it would only take once." <laughs> he meant it a different way, but it's kind of similar. <laughs> so I'm curious. <clears throat> we've talked about your influences, and, and I've always knowledge is free and it's and it's weightless and and you yeah. it really embody the the more you know the less you carry true uh, you mean like with physical actual gear or I'm always amazed at how far and how long you can travel yeah with Very next little. to nothing I don't see it as next to nothing when it comes to gear I'm always warm, sheltered, have the ability to hold water, hydrate, and make a fire. To me, everything after that is luxury. The fun and the goal and the drive is the scenery. I'd rather carry a little more weight in the camera than something else. I think everybody enjoys the outdoors in their own way, comfort zones. If, if somebody's happy with their 80 pounds or 40 pounds or 20 pounds and it gets them out there more, I'm always going to be behind it. I'm not going to be looking down on that. But for me, my style of travel, my way of traveling, 
I enjoy the trip and the journey, not just getting to camp and taking everything off because it's hurting. I get to camp and look around. I still have my pack on for a while because I, I don't know what's there. It, I'm, you know, some people are going to hate me for this one, but the Boy Scouts, what is it? I'd rather have it and not need it than yeah. need, need it and not, not have it. it. I feel very different these days. I feel I have felt that way for about 20 years, and if I don't have it, I probably don't need it. Yeah, it or you can just, make it. You can exactly. If you don't have it with you, you better have enough sense in your head to pull something off close to it. And often it's just something as simple as a steak, not like a sirloin or a New York strip. <laughs> the kind that you, you put into vampires. No, just a regular tent steak or tarp steak, little things like that you can make. You don't really need to take that. And, you know, people get caught up in the notches and things like that. You can just get a stick and shove it in the ground if it's just a, a one-nighter. So just thinking that way and not always being so gear oriented and there's nothing wrong with that but you guys have seen my gear it's made up of old beer cans and News, old newspapers coke cans and <laughs> I like to make stuff and modify stuff and my way of travel suits me I don't try to put it on other people it works for me I've never been in a situation where I was really frozen cold or uncomfortable because of my shelter choices and uh, I'm happy for that I, I, I just I fine-tuned it. It wasn't easy. It took some time. So you said you can't really think of a situation where you were cold and freezing and all that. How about... The backpacking I'll, travel situation yeah. where I put myself in. Yeah. yeah so choice, right? I always ask them when teaching a survival class or a land nav class, I'll ask the students, who in here has ever been lost in the woods? Oh, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> That's a fun one. <laughs> so do you remember any times where you've ever been lost? I'm trying to think there's two ideas that compete for the first time I was where I actually said to myself uh oh <laughs> I've seen this before on TV I've, this is, I'm good and lost and I just turned around with a quick panic it doesn't take much to get turned around and get that little that jolt of something and then you go okay it's over there would you call that lost no maybe a little panic two times when it was okay now I'm, now I'm finally lost I, I did it now I, I don't know which was the first time so uh I'll, I'll spit them both out in a short order. Uh, I was with my friend in 2000, and let me say 2005 or six. We're, we were in Southern California, Big Bear Mountains, Bertha Peak was the highest point in, in that area in San Bernardino. Well, I'm wrong, just in Big Bear. And we were up there hiking, and we went up on this little bluff, this little hill, and we're looking over the side. The view was great, seeing to the other valley. And, um, we just wanted to get back down to the trail. The Pacific Crest Trail runs through there. We're on a little offshoot. And we just couldn't find a good way down. Like, well, that doesn't look like we came from. That looks that's treacherous. That looks like you might slide. And we stayed up there for about 10 minutes. We felt like we were trapped in an episode of the Twilight Zone. Like, how did we, how did we get up here and not find a way or a trail down? And it was the just the weirdest thing. to. And my friend instantly went to, should we, should we think about building a shelter? Well, it's like 11 a.m., <laughs> like, no, we just uh, we just got to find it. And uh, there was this Woodsman series uh, with Ron Hood, and he had one great video on, on tracking. And uh, it was a tracking video, and at the time there were not a lot of resources for that. And I just remember this one point that kept ringing out in my head about finding a track or trying to see a track better, and I was looking towards the source of illumination, so where the sun is between you and it 
if you think there's a track and you're looking down low, it, it, it shoots out, you know, the silhouette um, contrast. And so we, I just kind of went around doing that and, and, and ended up finding something that looked like a footprint, and looking at the bottom of our shoes and kind of backtracking ourselves just to get back to, oh, that's where we came. But it looks different when you're up there than when you're going up. So it was just weird to find myself. So I turned around in like kind of an obvious situation. Oh, yeah. But it was one of those funny things where just thinking of that video and, the, and, and tracking and, and going back on, on this little thing, if I had not remembered that or thought about that, I probably might, just would have gone around there for a while. still be there. <laughs> <laughs> might have made a shelter. Well, anybody, but, uh, anybody that says they've, they've never been lost is either lying right. or they just haven't been out, out yeah. there true uh, one other time was it was in mammoth lakes california and i was playing a drum gig i don't think anybody listening to this has much of a clue that for probably the tw- last 12 to 13 years I've, I've worked as a traveling drummer i went to school for it it's one of the things that i actually consider myself to be professional at that and dehydrating myself <laughs> the only thing two things i'm an actual pro at um so i was doing a drum gig in mammoth lakes california elevation was about nine thousand feet and we set up, band set up, back to the cabin, just go out the back door of the cabin, looking around this area to see where I'm going to hike the next day. It's about 20 degrees, there's a few inches of snow. I had a Swiss Army knife on me, a Swiss champ. I'm walking around, just getting a little further, a little further, watching the times, getting a little darker, but I'm just behind the cabin in those woods. And um, I had never seen a bear in my life. Growing up in Big Bear, California, it was kind of funny because they have several hundred bears there. I've just never seen one in all the years. So as I'm there in Mammoth Lakes, California, and I'm not lost, I'm just a little turned around. I know where I need to go, but I see these massive, very fresh tracks. And, you know, I, I mean, we're all a fan of tracking, and you know, Patrick you know, still to this day teaches tracking classes, and we're just very aware of things and aging. And when you see a track that's in the snow, that's very fresh or wet sand. I think there's no other fresher way to see how sharp it is. More so than the dirt, more so than maybe mud. When you see how crisp and sharp the track is, you know this is recent. This is this is like now. <laughs> so I just kind of followed my eye line. It must have been maybe 50 meters away and I could see the biggest moving thing I've ever seen in the woods. <laughs> it was a large bear, very large, brown in color, but it was a black bear. And as uh, as I'm looking at the direction, it's kind of coming not toward me, just off to the side. It just threw my entire game plan off, and I just wanted to make distance. I tried to kind of sidestep, you know, just a little, <laughs> nothing to see here, and just skated off to a direction just to give it some distance. Um, and got turned around in the process, took the compass out, knew I needed to go back south to go back, but I couldn't because that's where the bear was. Long story short, I ended up going into this clearing that I thought was a lake. I'm going to do this lake crossing. Now I'm trying to just play drums tonight. <laughs> so I start with my foot scooting around, trying to see how far down before the ice. And there was grass. It was a golf course. I stumbled into this golf course after a couple of miles out there. Golf courses have paved roads and, and, and streets attached to them. This was a large one, and I, I couldn't see any. It's closed for the season, so yeah. there's nobody go- snow golfing. <laughs> <laughs> not yet. Not impossible, just hard. <laughs> I saw some lights in the distance, started walking toward it. Didn't feel I was so much lost anymore. If I can get to that road, it'd be okay. Forget about cell phone signal. This is probably early 2000s. And um, in the process of getting to that street, I see to my left three more bears coming 
in my general direction, and one was galloping very small and happy, two big bears behind it. So that, that ends up bad sometimes. So that, that was it. I got to the road and called the band and said, hey, I'm over on this street here, and a bunch of bears out here. If you want a drummer tonight. And, you know, they, uh, they, they, they got there with enough time to be able to see uh, the bears, and it was, it was kind of cool. We went to the Whiskey Creek, as it was called, and played, and I told people stories, and they said, the golf courses where all the bears hang out on the off season. Wow, I didn't mean to go there. Uh, that's it for getting lost. All right, so you do tons of travel. You know, you mentioned your drumming gig. Sure. That's on cruise ships, correct? Yes, I was working for cruise ships, and it gave me the opportunity to go to 75 different countries, starting from 1999, and. Uh, I would find a place that I really enjoy or like or just see a picture of it but not have enough time, I would make sure to go back there. I would say my biggest and favorite and best outdoor adventure trips were not work trips, were not drumming gigs. They were, I need to go back there and really uh, investigate this place, see what it's all about. And uh, many of those countries uh, to this day remain my favorite places photograph to eat to walk around to visit to spend my off time and my own money and, and um, I always feel that if you love food scenery architecture and the people you'll always return to those places if you can help it what are what are some of your favorites oh boy hmm that's uh and why favorite countries Favorite experiences. Even favorite, yeah, favorite trips. Favorite Something that sticks out. Like, you, you've traveled more than anybody I know. What are some of those kind of watershed moments that are like, oh, man, that was cool or unexpected? Several. <laughs> so many. Or uh, scary. Wow. Where do I start? Airport in Singapore. Think about that for a minute. Think, think about that. <laughs> think about that for a minute. But let me ask you this. I think, I think a, a barrier to entry for travel in some of these exotic places for a lot of people is fear. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so I guess in, in your, I think we have outward manifestations of whatever our mindset is. I agree a hundred percent. So, so if you travel in fear, you, you, you look fearful or you act yeah, fearful right. or, or you limit yourself. What's your mindset? I'm, I'm, I'm really in like curious about your mindset and, and how that facilitates experience and adventure and, and, and how, kind of how that shapes your experience. Okay, I'm going to reference once again the first trip down to uh, to Peru with the company. Uh, we all finished the trip. We're sitting in this little place, um, Tamachaku, little place, and we all finished the trip. Graduated the jungle trip, and Jeff starts talking about it, it was a good good crew, good trip, um, good team, and he says you guys now have a handful of survival skills, jungle survival skills, which. Our survival skills, most stuff is terrain-specific. Some things are universal no matter where you go. So what he said is your greatest survival skill in life is your social, how you interact, your social skills. And that was like, that made a lot of sense. And I was really starting to travel a lot at that time, so for him to say that was just the right right thing. So, and, and it's something as, as simple as a, a quick handshake, Somebody you don't know, a hand wave, saying hi, greeting people. Those little things get you out of what could be potentially worse situations. So disarming 
yourself first and then people and, and not going into it as negatively. Uh, I've been to several places where um, those social skills really have been necessary. Without them, people will just kind of look at you and maybe think, what's this guy all about? Look at his hair. I don't trust him. What's his hair? What's that? What's going on? I don't like this guy. I don't trust him. Looks shady. Um, but a smile and, and a wave will just break that ice. Like, oh, he's all right. One thing, one thing I've learned is people around the world are generally good folks. That is a fact. I mean, sure, there, everywhere you go, there's the bad element, but for the most part... There's bad element at this table. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> but for the most part, people are good. You I know, agree. I agree. Folks. I agree. Um, I've been to several places where maybe it's not... They are not normal. They are not normal vacation-type spots. There is no pool. I'm not there to stay inside. Beautiful places in the world always have a certain degree of... I hate to use the word danger because that's different for people, but wildness, just just wild. Let's say that uh, beautiful places like Venezuela and Peru and parts of the Philippines. I those names to me they coincide with adventure and beauty. With a lot of people, trouble, political unrest, uh, crime, things like that. If you go there with that mindset, you'll never leave your house. Sometimes. So you kind of know that's going to be there. You hope it's not. Uh, it shouldn't keep you from, from going places. I was, I was down south in the Philippines years ago, which is a beautiful, friendly country. I've been there several times. This one place I went was southern Philippines in Mindanao, where they have a group called the Abu Sayyaf, where they have a reputation for kidnapping people in other parts of the country or surrounding their area, holding them for ransom. For some reason, with Americans, because our country doesn't negotiate and pay, they like to cut our heads off. And that was a, a thing our friend Robert Pelton did years ago. He went down to Mindanao and interviewed him and did a whole story. And, um, so I went down there at a time in 2012 when we don't go there. We don't go down there. Filipinos don't want to go down there. They don't want to visit there, that part of their country. And I had a friend I'd met through a music gig, invited me to Mindanao, and I took... Um, friend of mine who's a great photographer, world traveler, just what a great guy and fellow instructor for the West Coast, um, Reza. And uh, we went down there and we're, we, we knew what we were getting into. We had to hire extra people to, we didn't feel we had to, but the locals felt we needed extra security. And it was one of those amazing surprises where not only was it, was it one of the friendliest places I'd been to, it was, it was probably the most scenic, maybe some of the best food. It was everything you never knew it would be, and I'm glad not everybody knows that because then it's not going to be that was, that was the one trip where I made sure to give you a really good heartfelt goodbye. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, and people ask me, you know, were you scared? Were you, were, were you afraid to go there? Were you scared? You'd be a fool not to be. But you can't just... You can't just do nothing. You can't, you, you can't just, well, I'm going to stay in. You, yeah, you go to the marketplace, you see it, you hope for the best. I wasn't, people will say things like, oh, you're stupid, or you're brave. And I say, no, I was just curious enough. Yeah. Yes to both. And uh, you also have to, you have to trust the people you're, you're going to be down there with. Um, and uh, that's the case when you go anywhere. Even first time going to a place like 
like Peru, you, you got to trust the people you're with and the guides, and, and things go from there that that make your trip great and memorable that you didn't know were going to happen. So, yeah, on any of our surprise. trips down in Peru and Amazon, I've never once felt right. uncomfortable or. It's not uncomfortable from well, a danger standpoint. From, from, from human danger or anything like that. The, the whole trip, you, you'll be uncomfortable. But True. I'm talking about from just walking around, you know, in the <laughs> towns or villages or whatever. It's funny because you say that uncomfortable in Peru, and I, I'm eager. I'm eager to share a story, Pete. <laughs> oh, I've been real uncomfortable down there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to share a quick story because sure. it, it, it just it fits in, and I think the world needs to know this. <laughs> I think it was 2011. You know where this is going, right? 2011 was a very rainy season, and we were doing the trip. And um, there's a lot of lot of swampy little ponds. And it was your first time down yeah. to Peru. Yeah. Um, and the company had released this knife that is themed after the bullet ant. Um, you know where this is going. I did. He's wincing. <laughs> Single teardrop. We were walking in the swamps, and... Uh, and uh, I just remember Patrick was in front of me, and he kind of, like, grabs the back of his right calf and, like, turns around and gives me this look. And uh, I hadn't seen that look before. I've seen it several times. It's no, I haven't like getting seen shot that. with a 22 <laughs> <Yeah>. rifle. <laughs> Sniper's got me. And the first thing I thought was, he might have got bit. I looked down, and there's this, this little black... It wasn't little. I shudder to say, <laughs> lit, right. This, this ant just on the water surface solitary ant and it's kind of swimming around and I'm, I'm laughing so hard at the fact that he got bit I just lose track of where this thing is it it comes around my calf <laughs> gets me too gotcha. so now we're both there just bit laughing and, and it was it was like wow things got really serious for a second because it's 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 a shock I can only describe it as um, heat a sting and uh, it, it had a bit of a sting and it was new for us we heard about it but uh, we both got bit by the Zula ant, the same ant. I think it had to be the same. Yeah, I got, got broken in right. And, <laughs> and we were just on our way to the first days, like real camp. I think we taught, uh, we taught. I don't know if it was shelter that shelter. day or fire, whatever it was we did. We we both were doing that all day with this lingering burn pain. And it's not hills and valleys. It's just Constant. it's on ten. <laughs> and what's funny is that you hear about it um, being very. Uh, potent for 10 to 12 hours in venezuela they got what they call the 24 hour ant it's the same ant and it's not 24 hours of fever it's it's the same thing yeah well so our, after the day's classes we were in hammocks i remember we're, we're sitting there you get in hammock or swamp bed at about 6 p.m because everything is crawling on you and, and moving around you can't really stand around a campfire always sometimes but um so you're just kind of in your shelter hanging out talking getting to know people laughing and we kept asking each other, how is it now? It's still just as powerful as it was at 10.30 or 11 a.m. And then it was like around 11 p.m. or something. It, it's like a switch. It just stops. Yeah. It just turns off. It, yeah, it looks less than look, a mosquito bite. I remember looking at the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's right. exactly 11, 12 hours. And it just stops. The next day you're not sore. You can barely see a red mark. That's it. Yeah. It's just, uh, you know, it was, um, it was a cool, fun experience and uh i highly recommend it for everybody traveling oh, yeah. <laughs> it was. so reuben one of the things that uh that i really want to uh take an opportunity at, at this point yes. when we're recording this 
we have exactly zero followers. <laughs> but in case that someone, when we do post this, actually happens across it and maybe knows a guy. A time capsule. Um, if you had to pay homage or say thank you to someone, like give credit where credit's due, I, I'd really like to hear our folks, our guests, like, like who are those people that you just say, hey, appreciate it? For the help in the industry, for the adventure, for all this, and I'd have to say it's just two people. It's, it's Mike Perrin and Jeff Randall. They really got me into this. They allowed me to come back after being a student and help out with their next Jungle class, which ended up being a TV show. And uh, that was a great experience to be part of that in a small a TV show. I didn't know that. Try Before, Before You Die. Die. It was Dutch television. Uh, quite unique. They sent us three people. Um, the star of the show, nice, nice guy, pretty boy guy, never spent a day in the woods, a director, the cameraman. And we were supposed to teach them, train them in jungle survival for like, it was like the 24-hour day. <laughs> day. Just enough to get hurt and killed. Uh, everybody was fine. But um, and uh, that was that was the TV show. That was it was fun to be a part of that with Mike and Jeff and uh, other people in 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 Peru. The contacts, people that we still work with to this day that we know, reoccurring faces. Um, and then to go on to be encouraged to write for the publications and and uh, encouraged to put a class together for the West Coast where I was living at the time with another student from Woodland. Ops uh, from a 2011 class, uh, Reza, and we, um, you know, put together a West Coast class for the company, and all that was done and supported uh, by Mike and Jeff. You know, uh, so it'd have to be them. Without that, it was we wouldn't be here at this moment. We're still trying to get you to start up another one in New Jersey. Well, they heard about what I did in California. <laughs> they ain't having it. <laughs> Been banned from the West Coast. It's a possibility. It seems fun. So, um, let's looking back, looking forward. What's down the road for for uh, what's on the like? Where are you going? What are you doing? Do you have any? I mean, I know uh, the cruise lines are kind of shut down, so you got sure. plenty of time on your hands. Well, but I really do miss travel. That's a fact. I'm just riding more these days. Riding more, and I, I got to the point where I'm able to do a lot more with the camera. I always felt I was better with the camera than I was riding, and have been able to do several. Th- pieces on travel photography, travel safety, travel articles, things that were just a little bit outside of the realm of the outdoors because of the travel part of it. And I've been fortunate enough in the past year to do a lot more uh, cover shoots for magazines and photos. And um, that opens a different thing. One thing has nothing to do with the other. And be able to do them both and have to be good at both is keeping me sharp keeping the camera out, keeping the skills sharp, and, uh, and outdoor skills, and hoping that international travel is a little easier and I can get back to uh, things I used to be, things I used to do, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Patrick, you got anything else you want to cover? I do. Put uh, Ruben on the spot. So anytime you come to Georgia, uh, my wife and both my boys and myself are very excited because you're such a great cook. <laughs> How did you first start getting into that? I mean, oh wow! You know, if people follow you, you know, sure. on Instagram, right? You've got Ruben, you've also got Adventure Food Guy, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, okay. So how did all that get started? Again, knife magazines, knife writing. I uh, always like knife skills, and the big hole in that knife skills game was uh, food prep and kitchen prep, and that's a whole 
that's a whole different thing. You could teach a whole class on food prep with a cleaver or a knife. It's, it's different rules. None of it is like outdoors piece of you know piece of wood or something. So uh, uh, to do an article on these kitchen knives that I was sent, I thought what I better see what this skill set is that I really need to need to brush up on and. I was never a big eater. I was always very picky. Didn't eat much. Used to beg for days off of eating when I was a kid. The most they gave me was four. And my mom just said, "Are right, you going to eat?" <laughs> so uh, uh, it was um, just that that I I wanted to do this article justice, and I was going into the kitchen knife article, going into that kind of field because more companies that I knew and had relationships with were putting out kitchen knives. So I had to get some food prep and watch, try. Like anything else, you make a hundred mistakes until you get it right, and then you make a few hundred more, and then you, you, you kind of levels off. So it really just started with, again, adding to the knife skill set with food prep. Uh, huge, then I had all this food. It's <laughs> yeah, a huge I, jump from uh, spam to, <laughs> right. to uh, pow chicken in a lot. I've, <laughs> I've, had, I've had friends and, and people from my past saying, why don't we eat that that way when we were camping? How come we had to eat this? So, uh, But it, it just made me interested in um, fire. I did a lot of traveling in Southeast Asia. That being said, I was around a lot of different food, and uh, food of the world is what really got me interested in in that the cooking part because it wasn't something I can I can get so easily. So I had to make it. I thought, all right, maybe I can try to make this. So that really got me into crafting it and... Um, I used to write lyrics when I was young for, for, for bands, a lot of bands, and I used to record drums in studios, and that was a huge passion of mine. It's a creative thing. And then, same thing when you're, you're sitting around trying to make a camp or some implementing camp, you're using your creative side with certain rules, um, writing for publications and, and, and doing photography, slowly getting into that. These are all things that feed off the creative side of your brain and... I felt that the less drumming I was doing or other things, uh, the more I put that creativity into something else that Mm -hmm. would either be lucrative or at least useful. (laughs) It's kind of funny. Uh, You blow mine and Patrick's philosophy out of the water. Patrick and I are on the road and in the field quite a bit. You you blow the number of days a year that we do out of the water. Well, I'm just camping most of the time. Well, but still, you're out. Epic trips anymore. We live off of uh, quick and easy <laughs> truck stop, gas station food, sure. and uh, and, and then we see you living uh, like well, man. We got to do a better job of that. I mean, we're out here enough to where and you can't live off freeze dried cat meat tacos. Uh, oh yeah, where there is hey, don't it. knock the cat meat tacos. Cat that meat cop tacos. That is, that is good. That's a topic for another yeah. podcast. <laughs> I know what you're saying about being on the road and stuff like that. Um, was a uh, traveled on the road for years with the band when I was in my early 20s and you are kind of at the mercy of what does this gas station have? What's yeah. open a snack bar? I guess you could eat a little bit better stuff. There are choices but quick and easy is the way to go when you're doing this kind of travel. What I, what like I love is doing. how you know, quick and easy in the woods would be like I said, spam over a fire which is great, nothing wrong. Oh yeah, I love that. But you take even your woods cooking to that next level. A lot of the stuff you do in the kitchen I see on right. a smaller scale you carry over into just over a campfire 
Yeah, sometimes I regret it. Like, ah, next time I'm going to go a lot easier. And then I'm thinking, no, I want to do this type of shakshuka dish outdoors. I want to do this type of fried rice outdoors. And um, and, and it, it's more fun because one of my favorite things about being in the outdoors is cooking and, 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 and the fire and being able to do, I think at one time or another, we've all been victim of that lost bacon or hot dog to the fire gods. Oh, yeah. And it's frustrating. But um, so... I thought, well, I just want to take it a little further than meat on a stick, and there's nothing wrong with that. I still love meat on a stick, but it was something different that not a lot of people were doing, and I really wanted to show people, not just for what I was writing for, but people on forums, which I hadn't done in a while, and on Instagram, which Shane got me into, and, you know, Patrick took pushed me. We wore you down. about <laughs> seven years. No, it, it took, took a while, took a and uh, I, I appreciated that. I, I do, because it really... Um, it opened other things, other doors, and helped me be creative in another way. and um, Another outlet. Another outlet. And I want to show people it doesn't always have to just be the same. Uh, and so I started doing videos for magazines, like their online side. And then I started doing, um, I started getting all these articles that where guys were wanting me to do a column on outdoors cooking, but not the usual stuff. Up, up in your game, kind of. Yeah. Up in your your back country your field cooking, games, stuff yeah. like that. Wild cooking, uh, frying food on, on 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 flat rock. Something I've been doing for for years. Now I want a piece on it. So that's kind of cool to to kind of try to tackle what you do in the kitchen, but in the outdoors kitchen. And, and and often, I would start off making stuff for the first time in the woods, and then try to duplicate it at home. When a lot of people did the opposite, I would make something for the first time in the woods. It's a lot harder to control that. You have less control. So you're kind of like juggling, trying to get this going. And then I would go back to the kitchen, which is, I always did everything backwards. People told me that my entire life. Fake it till you can make it. In <laughs> uh, drumming, too, I was already at a level making money drumming before I ever went to music school. And then going back and trying to learn to catch up with the foundations. And with the writing thing, my first gigs were, my first credit with magazines was as a photographer for a new knife for rat cutlery called the rap four and jeff had sent one out and it was to me another guy was going to write it he didn't have it because i had the knife they asked me to do the photography and it was my first photo credit and i had a point and shoot camera then i had to go back and learn photography like you know yeah. I, I had to go backwards and and learn all those basics and stuff and it was, uh, so i've always kind of gone that way <laughs> backwards so one one question i've got for you you get to come in contact with a lot of companies yeah uh, different knife makers and stuff like that for articles who are some of the up-and-comers we need to be keeping an eye out for that are just getting started that are you know you see a lot of potential in their designs and, and just knives uh, anything. Uh, uh, just pertain to the outdoors. Um, let's just let's expand it to gear because most of gear. our people that do knives also, you know, backpack or have other outdoor outdoor right. gear, outdoor right. arena. Right. Well, it's going to seem like maybe some of the same people I've been talking about, or writing about, or posting about. But I wouldn't be doing it unless I I used their stuff and, and believed it and I thought it was really really great. Um, and um, uh, for outdoors gear and things that are going to work for you in camp whether you use it as a set or take it apart. A company that has really been great, good to me and puts out quality stuff is Uberlieben. I, just, I saw him, wasn't interested. Uh, my friend, uh, fellow writer, Jonathan Kilburn, he had some, he showed me. I thought it would be cool. I, I'd written them up for several magazines and I continue to 
follow what they're doing. Tough Possum Gear is another one. Jay Barry, really good, good man. I love his story. Great backstory about his introduction to the industry, and it's just the, the story alone will get you want to buy something. And he's him. a young so dude cool. too, man. He is. Like super young. He is, and just what a great story and, and the stuff he's putting out and he'd reached out to me before when he was coming up with some things and to see him go from a handful of great gear to like in a, a hug full or an armful bushel of good gears it's amazing and uh, i've been able to to use his stuff in different settings for backdrop for photos for magazines and it's just it, there's so much versatility in what he does and, and pieces of gear not to name all his gear and stuff but somebody to look out for that is just good and reliable and humble it's hard to find that combination of things i believe um knife makers i'm gonna have to say there's a guy out of california garrett and he's doing some really good stuff out of the desert there 29 palms um and uh, his bear forest knives he sent patrick and i a couple of knives that, that we really like the style and everything about it, it wasn't 100 percent at the time now it's probably <laughs> beyond that increase it's, it's there <laughs> it's it's amazing what, what he's done, and he worked with Armitus, uh, Matt Armitus Sheets, and they um, they did his sheets for him for a while, and then they didn't. They didn't have the time, and he's doing them. I'm gonna say just as good, or every yeah. bit as good. Yeah. And so, and, and what he's doing, and how fast he's, he's he's doing it is both good and maybe scary at the same time. I hope he can keep that level going and maintain it. Um, he's another guy, kind of like we believe in. We're kind of a one one-stop shop company where you can get a lot of things for camp for wilderness craft and and enjoying your your adventures is, is rewild gear um, those four brothers out of kentucky um they've come up with a handful of, of good gear that's not the run of the mill it's not the same thing yeah and there's nothing new under the sun let's all face that but they're not offering the same combinations and i kind of like the, the products they put out in the direction they're going and um they're very new up and coming and I just I they've give them all the they've support. spent quite a bit of time here in the booth they during sure Shasha. Super nice guys. <laughs> I, I, I think the the best conversations I've had this whole week have been with with them and anybody else who was at the show listening. Of course, everybody. You're all my favorites. So um, I, I think um, that's all I can think of that are new and up and coming that I really like. I mean, we all have mutual friends that we probably think are are maybe new, up and coming, about the same. And of course we. Chain introduced me to Wazoo Gear and Kelso Bushcraft, and those guys are just, they're doing something different. They're, you're wearing stuff that, that it looks cool, it's functional, you can collect it. Uh, I like that too, and I like little companies like that starting out. You'll rarely see me gravitate toward the big companies when it comes to gear, whether it be knives or anything. Um, so I like the, the new creative companies. They're a little more hungry. With all your travel and experience and all the places you've seen, you ever thought about writing a book? No. I didn't think so. (laughs) How do you say the same thing that people have been saying for several years? I mean, there's always a different twist on it, but um, you're not the first to say that. And and it is um, a a natural thing for people to say, write a travel Years ago, Mike and Jeff were encouraging me to do a picture book, like a coffee table picture book of you know, just like photos and stuff like that. And I thought that'd be cool to do just like one-line captions. And, and then yeah, this was uh, years ago when I was doing a lot more travel photography. And, uh, You've yeah, got enough material for it. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. Maybe I could see maybe uh, decorating a 
Chinese restaurant or a Thai <laughs> restaurant with photos, but uh, <laughs> we'll see. I, I, I love camera work. Yeah, it is uh, something I'm, I'm still working on. Uh, I think if you're good at something and you want to be better at it, you always have to keep working on it. So that's a skill that continues to develop. Ruben, let's talk about, we've, we've hit on a little bit, let's talk about where people can follow you and, and stay kind of up to date on what's going on with I'm Ruben. I'm really only on Instagram these days, as you know. And, and what is your handle there? It's just my name, um, Ruben Bollier. Spell and, that uh, last name because it's not well, phonetically. Well, the first name, I'll spell the first name too because there's, there, there's the German spelling, there's Mexican spelling. Um, a friend out of Israel spells it a certain way, so I spell it R-E-U-B-E-N, last name B-O-L-I-E-U. It and looks like Baloo, but Baloo is the bear in the Jungle Book, I yeah. think, right? <laughs> and uh, it's a French last name. Nobody in my family's French, so go figure. I'll answer to anything these days. So that's just at Ruben Bollier. That's right. And that's my outdoor stuff. I keep it just outdoors and travel and gear, um, travel photos. To me, the travel and the outdoor stuff, they have just kind of like kind of the same thing, same mindset. The cooking stuff I, I do outdoors, kitchen, inside kitchen is adventure food guy, and uh, I'm just creating food from the world that I've traveled at home and posting you know, videos of marketplaces I've been to. You learn a lot about a culture and people by walking around their their marketplaces, their night markets, and the street fairs, street markets. You learn a lot about them just from that. I can say that. Just being immersed in that mm-hmm. culture. Right, just walking around the marketplace in, in, in Finland and Scandinavia. You've been to Sweden, you know what the marketplace looks like. That You get an idea, this is what they eat, this is what they wear. Don't what forget the Baleen market. Oh, wow, how could you? I tried <laughs> to. Um, anywhere you go in the world, you get a sense of the people and their culture by their marketplace. And whether that be fish markets, uh, and, and people don't understand all the time that when I say marketplaces, I mean night markets. It's a combination of... Uh, handcrafted stuff, cheap knockoff t-shirt crocs, but then over here they're they're butchering chickens and goats and over here they, it's just it's everything. It's not just one thing it, and it's uh, it's probably one of the most authentic experiences you can get in another country um, outside of North America that you 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 could see it or you can visit it. Uh, it's hard to explain, put your finger on it. Patrick, while we're here, what's your IG uh, Patrick Rollins, two thirty, I think. Yeah, I don't do a lot on Instagram much anymore. We're pushing, we're pushing <laughs> for more. Uh, I'm Shane Adams ninety, but you can also follow us at SE Knives on Instagram, SE Knives on YouTube, SE Knives Randall's Adventure and Training, SE Knives on Facebook. I think Instagram too. We're uh, we're we're trying to plant flags and all this stuff. We're actually on TikTok now. I got suckered <laughs> into that. Um, so yeah. like Jeff and Mike dancing. Yeah, just you just got to go where people are. So we've already been shadow banned on there. So <laughs> listen, guys, we've been we. This is our first podcast, and, and man, Ruben, you set the bar. You know, not low. Um, and so we appreciate that. I've put them to sleep. Yeah, uh, <laughs> soothing sounds. We really don't have a, a format for those. So so anybody that's listening uh, or shares this or does whatever. Um, we appreciate it, and this is going to be for us. And, and the first, you know, the first series of episodes that we're going to do is going to be mostly about our story as a company, our stories as individuals, and how we came to the company. We're open to suggestions, um, but for now, I think we're uh, going to sign off here. Uh, thank y'all for listening uh, once again. This is the Essie Rat Pack podcast, and uh, we'll be doing another one of these pretty soon.
So y'all take care. Thank you.